Hey, Abby here. I'm just popping in real quick before the episode starts to let you know that this episode contains discussion of graphic violence, such as stabbing, shooting, and choking, as well as discussion about the depiction of racialized violence in horror films. We also mention sexual assault as relevant to the film and the Columbine Massacre. This episode contains spoilers for Scream and Scream 2. I'm Abby. And I'm Brianna, and this is What's Next? A pop culture podcast for people who watch things they probably shouldn't have when they were kids. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Scream, the horror movie that was released in 1996 and its sequel Scream 2 which was released in 1997. I'm just wondering what month Scream was released. Like what's Scream's sign? Scream is I think a Capricorn because the first one was released on Christmas, so December 25th. Okay. Um, and this... that means very little to me. I only know things about four signs. See, I know a lot about Capricorn because Jordan, my my boyfriend, is a Capricorn, and that's also my moon sign. So, aside from Scream, do you watch scary movies or horror movies? Not really. It's not my like go to genre. I've seen a few. It was like a big thing for me and my friends in high school to like hang out at each other's houses and rent like a couple of horror movies and we weren't watching any of like the old ones at that point we were watching all the ones that had come out recently then but we would just like talk through the entire movie so it's like I don't have a lot of memories of watching horror movies that have come out in the past like decade or so but I have seen like I've seen all the Scream movies multiple times I've seen the first Halloween movie from the 70s which is a great movie um I've seen Psycho, and I've seen Shaun of the Dead, which is kind of in, like, a similar genre of Scream in that it's, like, satirizing the formula of a zombie movie. So, but it's, like, still a horror movie, and it's still, you know, gross, and they're still, like... They watch that in Scream 4, don't they? Yeah, they do. The two girls. Yeah. Okay, There's, like, there's genuine fear in it, but it's also, like, very funny at parts, um... Gotcha. That's about the gist of what I've seen. It's definitely not a go-to genre for me because I don't, I don't know. I just, like, don't want that in my head all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why I watch a lot Um, of comedies because I don't like being grossed out or... Scared. So if Ghostface were to call you and ask if you like scary movies, you'd be like, um, sometimes. Like, what would Ghostface do? <laughs> right. I think for me, uh, scary movie, horror movie wise, I've tended to drift more towards psychological thrillers. Yes. Um, especially when I was younger. There's a, there's some blurred lines in these genres, and I'm sure there'll be some film bros who are like, that's not what that is. But Black Swan comes to mind, um, and then I watched tons of Lifetime thrillers. So that's kind of where I live, horror-wise, until recently when I watched Crimson Peak. It's a Del Toro film, 
and it's like a gothic horror romance so yeah that's my kind of thing i like um i like gothic stuff yeah that's kind of what i like assumed about you is that i like knew that you were gonna say you're more in like the thriller genre because for some reason in the psychological thriller genre because for some reason that's just like I don't know. That's like your your vibe. Whereas like I've always thought about it as like I think I would rather watch a slasher movie than a psychological thriller. I don't like I don't know what that says about me. I think it says I don't want to be fucked with <laughs> in the brain. I do enough of that myself. <laughs> but I also don't like extreme gore either. Like I don't think I'd be able to watch something like Saw. What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? I think I've seen one of the Conjuring movies. This is going back to, like, when I was in high school. I think it was, like, one of the Conjuring movies or one of the... I don't think Insidious is that scary, but... Yeah, if if there is a such thing as, like, the scariest movie I've seen, I don't remember it. I think for me it was one of the first two Paranormal Activity movies. Have you seen those? No. Oh my god, dude, <laughs> I watched them when I was, like, 12 or 13. Um, they're spooky. I don't know how I would react to them now, um, but it's- they're found footage films. Yeah. I have to watch The Blair Witch Project. I've actually never seen that one. Oh, and I also just watched Unfriended, and I loved it! The horror movies that are done in one take fascinate me because it's just theater. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of, I do remember this one movie, and the reason it sticks out in my head watching from watching it in high school is called The Gallows, and it's because it takes place, like, in a high school auditorium thing. So, I don't quite remember the premise, but there's just so many things that you can do with that space that it's, like, people literally running through, like, um, the catwalks and stuff like that, and, you know, getting lost in really creepy parts of the building, and getting killed by, like, the the different, like, rigging equipment and stuff like that. It was a time. American Horror Story Strike. (laughs) Yes. What's your experience with the Scream franchise? I watched the Scream movies when I was a teenager, like 13 or 14, and I watched- the reason I got interested in them is because I was really into watching the TV show Friends at the time, because it was on reruns on TBS, like, every day when I was, like, back home from school, basically, and I, like, just loved Courtney Cox, just, like, something about her. I just- loved her and I thought she was really funny and a really good actress and like so beautiful so I was like I need to see more of this gal stuff (laughs) so I found out that she was in the screen movies with David Arquette who was her husband at the time now they're divorced they got like divorced around the time that I had seen these movies um and so that was like my way in I started watching it for that but then I realized And this is someone who had never seen a scary movie before. And then I realized that it was just, like, really smartly written and, like, funny while still, 
being scary and interesting and like kind of suspenseful to watch and that like the ki- the characters are all really well done like the characters have actual you know rich complex like inner lives um and so that's what kept me kept me on them and kept me going my first scream experience was um i have this friend and she was like <laughs> hey we should watch scream i loved them in middle school and i said okay sure let's do it and then we watched them spoiler alert that friend was me it occurred to me i was like I've never talked to Abby about this before, and Abby needs to see these movies. And I wasn't sure if you were going to like them or not, but yes, we did We did live together for three blissful weeks in 2020, and we watched all of them together. So so continue on your... Um, I mean, that's pretty much it. It was just a happy sailing moment yeah how many people i watched them how many people have you shown the first one to now since <laughs> i watched it with you in like july <laughs> i've shown it to three other people now i showed it to my mom one of my other close friends and my grandma did your siblings watch it with you when you watched it with your mom or was it just you and your mom um they watched some of it and my dad also watched more than my siblings. So I guess if you count them, then I've introduced it to like seven people. She's just spreading it around. I spreading am. the love. I love and them. now we're spreading it by doing this podcast episode Yay! on it. Let's kick it off by summarizing what happens in Scream. I'm going to give myself like 90 seconds to summarize. Do you want me to set a timer for you or like a stopwatch? Yeah. A stopwatch would okay. be perfect. I definitely think you can do it because you are more concise than I am as a person. I don't think that's <laughs> true. I'll give you a G-O. Okay, go. Okay, so we start off with Drew Barrymore making some Jiffy Pop and she has a really <laughs> shitty wig on. The character's <laughs> name is Casey. Her phone rings. It's a man with a really low voice and he's asking if she likes scary movies and... She's like, yeah, I like Halloween. And then he he asks what her name is. And she says, I'm not going to tell you. Why do you want to know? And he says, because I want to know who I'm looking at. Uh-oh, he's outside the house. Her boyfriend is tied up on the porch. And he gets slaughtered. And then she dies. Okay, cut to school the next day. There's a bunch of kids and they're friends. So it's Sydney, um, Billy, Stu, Randy, and Tatum. So they're friends. They're vibing, but somebody's been killed. And it's just like the time Sydney's mom got murdered a year ago. So it's kind of scary. Billy ends up getting arrested because he has a phone on him and he crawls through Sydney's window when she almost got killed by the same same murderer as Casey. Uh, Gail Weathers is trying to get on the case. She wants to solve this thing. So she goes to a party they're having. Tatum bites the dust in the garage door. Uh, Randy teaches people the rules of horror movies. Sydney loses her virginity, which is a terrible social construct, but we won't talk about that right now. Uh, Gail Weathers sneaks into the party. Dewey tries to be a cool cop. He almost dies. Uh, uh uh-oh, there's two ghost faces. We never saw that coming. Pew pew. Girl power. (laughs) (laughs) The movie ends. Wow. Yeah, that was... A minute and 38 seconds, and I mean, you got 
a good amount of the details. I got all their names. Yes, you did get all their names. Um, a couple things. Gail Weathers is a TV journalist, but she has also written the book about the murder of Sydney's mom in the previous year, and she believes that the person who Sydney accused is innocent. And he's currently in jail, like, awaiting um, the death penalty. Yeah, she, uh, Gail Weathers wants to be Nancy Grace. Yes, she's very much a Nancy Grace type. I think that's the, that's like the only major thing I left out. Oh man, there was another thing I thought of. Well, you didn't say that Billy and Stu are the killers, I don't think. Oh yeah, I just said there were two of them. It's Billy, the boyfriend, and then Stu. Who's uh, one of the friends I mentioned? Yes, yes, yeah. B- so, <laughs> so Billy is Sydney's boyfriend, and Stu is Billy's best friend, and also Sydney's friend Tatum's boyfriend. If you followed that, um, and their rationale for going on this murder spree is what Billy says that. He found out that his father was having an affair with Sydney's mother, and that affair caused his mom to leave them, and he used that as an excuse to kill Sydney's mom, and then a year later, try to kill her and everybody else. And Stu's motive. Oh, Stu, 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 what's your motive? Billy's got one, the police are on their way, what are you gonna tell them? Peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. Stu's on the line with Sydney while she's hidden, and he's like basically dying on the phone and crying. And he's he's just like a soft boy. He got taken advantage of, I think. And also, like, you know, not to have sympathy for a serial killer, but he Yeah, he I don't know. What do you think? People think that Billy and Stu are like gay. For each other. That's a really popular theory. Um, I do not feel that way. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't really see that. Especially, I don't know. I mean, he says it's peer pressure. He didn't do it to impress anyone. Although he does say near the start of the film, when they're discussing the death of Casey, that it would have to take, like, a real man to gut someone like that. So there are those moments where, like, maybe he's trying to prove his masculinity. But I don't see them as being romantically involved in any way. Yeah, I don't think they're romantically involved. Like, if anything, Stu just has, like, some sort of devotion to Billy, which, like, you could do a queer reading on that, but... I don't think anything's actually went down, you know? Yeah. Billy definitely doesn't have any feelings for him. I don't think Billy gives a shit. One thing I wanted to discuss here, the act of romanticizing serial killers. Yeah. So, I don't know if you've ever been on true true crime Tumblr, but it's, uh, it's a time. So, I'm relatively into true crime. I find cold cases in particular to be really fascinating there are certain places on the internet that take that to a different level and they'll be like 
fan cams of mass murderers oh, and like flower crown edits. Like there are literal flower crown edits and like Valentine's Day cards with these boys on them. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm talking about here. But from what I've seen from Scream fans online, there does not seem to be that same attitude. Like, I don't know. I, I don't really see anyone calling Billy and Stu like, ooh, ooh, my precious king, my sensitive... Ba-. Like, I don't see that. Yeah. With, have you seen anything like that at all? From what I can remember, I think there is kind of like... There might be just like a tiny bit of compassion for them. Which, like, I get it because like, you know to kill somebody like there is something wrong with you clearly but like i think in terms of scream fans it seems to be more just like they like the character which is yeah. good because like you can That's still like a character can... yes <laughs> yeah exactly like and i mean Stu's probably one of my favorite characters of the entire franchise because like he's just so funny and well 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 acted and well written um yes and what else was i gonna say about that part of it is that they do want to kind of live on but not to be known as killers because part of their plan is to frame sydney's dad and they'll kind of become famous as like the survivors and that's then true. Stu has that line about, like, we're going to stick around and we're going to plan the sequel. So that also makes me wonder at this point, it, does Stu just become addicted to the adrenaline of killing people? Because he doesn't yeah. really have a motive, but he says, like, we're going to plan a sequel, which means he just wants to kill more people, even though if they happened to kill Sydney, technically that would mean their job was done because that's what the original goal was. I'm also wondering, though, because I just watched this, and I was looking for Matthew Lillard's jaw tension in this scene, <laughs> and uh, right when Billy tells Sydney that her mother slept with his father, Stu's reaction is one of surprise. Yeah, so, you're right. He seems like he doesn't even know that Billy yeah, did it. I don't think Stu knew that there was an actual motive. Oh, girl. Because that brings it to another right. place where, like, Stu did not do it then to help his friend. Because he didn't know that's why his Billy's mother left. He just did it for fun. Yeah. That also makes me wonder, too, this is something I've thought about a lot, is, like, why the timeline worked out the way it did. So, like, Sydney's mom is killed, and then a year later they decide to go after Sydney. Like, why not, you know, just, like, do it right after they kill her mom? You know, like, why did it need to be on the year anniversary of her death? Yeah. I wonder if it was because of uh, Casey dumping Stu. And them already having that, like, feeling inside them of, like, having killed a person and knowing that they can do it again. Yeah. Because, like, 
Especially if it's something Billy suggested. So if Billy's mom left, he killed the mother. He killed Sydney's mother. And then Billy's friend Stu gets hurt by this girl. So they plan to go after her. Yeah, and Billy and Sydney have been together for like over two years. He says something about that in the movie. Um, yeah. Because like part of the part of the plot is that he wants Sydney to have sex with him, uh, and <laughs> he like is trying to manipulate her into doing so. And he says something about how, like, oh, yeah, two years ago we were hot and heavy and he's commenting on, like, however, like, ever since her mom died, she's just been, like, kind of, you know, frozen up about it. Because, you know, that's that's fair. That's a normal psychological emotional reaction is to not want to have sex (laughs) after your mom died. And also part of it is that... um, in the original, like, reports, they say that Sydney's mom was raped. So, yes. yeah. This is something that I was so confused about this until last time I watched it. So, they found the DNA of the man that Sydney had accused with Maureen's body. So, Cotton Weary's DNA. For some reason, I thought that not only did Cotton have the consensual affair with Sydney's mother, but also when they murdered her, like when Billy murdered her, that he assaulted her. But that's not true. She just had sex and then died. Right, yeah. So, like, Cotton was leaving her, and they presumably yeah. had sex that night. And um, that's when Billy and Stu killed her, was, like, afterwards. Because... Or Gail and Sydney have this exchange about um, a jacket. You know, Cotton's jacket. The best scenes, I feel like, are when Sydney and Gail, like, square off with one another. Because Sydney is, like, clearly traumatized and she doesn't want this bitch, like, profiting off of her mother's death. And she's also just, like, very confident that Cotton Weary was the killer. And Gail is very, is, like, pretty publicly not in agreement with her and like you know Sydney obviously takes issue with that that's very painful for her um and Gail is just trying to get to the bottom of what really happened so there's this great scene where like after they're leaving when Billy was um arrested in like the middle of the movie and yeah so Dewey Tatum and Sydney walk out the back side of the police station because they want to avoid the press but of course Gail Weathers is there with her cameraman, Kenny. By the way, Dewey and Tatum are related. They're brother and sister. Um, and Dewey's a cop, like the worst cop ever. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a second. Sydney asks Gail about her book, and she says, Well, it'll be out later this year. Oh, I'll look for it. I'll send you a copy. <clears throat> I also love, right after that punch, how supportive Tatum is, because it cuts from... The punch, them getting in the car, and then to their the room they're sleeping yeah, in. Tatum's Tatum house. And yeah. God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Sid! Super bitch! You are so cool. Yeah, Tatum's like I replaying it. it over and over again for Sydney, and Sydney's <laughs> like, I just want to go to bed. So let's talk about Dewey. So Dewey is a very sweet 
kind of dorky, naive cop. He's a deputy. And he he's played by David Arquette. And he is, I would say he's like definitely set up as like the main suspect throughout the movie other than Billy. Like everybody's a suspect, but I mean, pretty much anybody that like, like when you first watched it, you kind of assumed that it was Dewey. Um, Yeah, it's because of that scene right after the, the replays that Tatum does. The phone rings and it's Ghostface. So Billy's in jail, so you know it can't be Billy. And right as Sydney hangs up, that's when Dewey walks out of his room. So the way that they they film that makes it very intentional that Dewey did not come out of his room until she was off the phone, which is why I thought it was him. Yeah, and there's certain parts in the party scene too, I think, where like... Just things that are a little bit suspicious, like when he goes out in the woods and he invites Gail to go with him. Um, Yeah, and then, like, yeah, I do think he's kind of set up as, like, a suspect, even though, like, you know, at the end, he's very clearly, like, not. (laughs) And he's just so, like, he's just such a pure soul, yeah, and Gail, Gail kind of takes advantage of him. Cops in movies. Yeah, let's let's talk about cops for a second. He's my superior. Janitor is your superior. So, the the question that we've talked about before is: Should Dewey be canceled for being a cop? Right. <laughs> um, I know I've seen a lot of discussion online. It's like a cab, except for the people in Brooklyn Nine Nine, and that kind of thing, and all this shit. I feel like it's a very complex issue when it comes specifically to media's portrayal and especially in comedies. His character, one, he's a terrible cop. Like, he's bad at yeah, his job. Yeah, he's straight up bad at his job. So... <laughs> Two, the way that it's written does not evoke any respect for the traditional duties of a cop. Yeah, nobody takes him, I mean, nobody takes him seriously. And also kind of the cops in general are, like, not, there's, like, the police chief or whatever, the sheriff, and, like, basically, I mean, nobody really cares about what they have to say or, like, they can't seem to get on it, like, fast enough. We also know that Dewey is very lax about underage drinking yes 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 (laughs) um like he goes to the party and he sees someone drinking it's it's really cute he takes yeah he takes the beer out of the kid's hand and he's just like "Eh, i'm kidding have a good night (laughs) and gives it back to him he's not a profiler and he's not revered as like a savior like he's neither one of those things yeah he's just like a a dumb man just a dumb man (laughs) He's he's so overwhelmed by his <laughs> lust for Gale Weathers, but he also doesn't come across at all as the kind of character who, like, has to do cop things, just cop just things. Just cop things. Um, <laughs> just cop things to, to feel good about himself or to feel powerful. Like, he never 
throughout the series, he never does that. Yeah, this is why, this is one of the reasons I need a prequel, because I need to know, like, how did Dewey become a cop? Like, how did he make that decision? Because <laughs> he's yeah. not even really, like, he doesn't appear physically fit. Like, he's not just, he's not like a hyper-masculine dude that's like, ah, oh, this seems like something I can do. Like, but also, is that a bad thing that we're like, oh, they're just friendly? Right. I mean, I think one of the major critiques with things like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is that, okay, like, the institution is bad no matter in what, no matter what light it's, like, painted in. Um, yeah. And it's hard for us, who are very likely to n- not be victims of police violence, yes. to, you know, us assume that there can be non-problematic representation. Um, Before we move on from this topic, and I'll restate this at the end, but we are very open to discussion on this. We want to hear your voice on it, and we love to listen and and discuss. So, our Twitter is what's next pod C. You can tweet us there, or... uh, we will come up with some other ways you can contact us. But for now, you can tweet us. <laughs> and if you want to DM us and discuss things privately as well, we are very open to discussion and learning. That's how we all understand the world and each other better. So, yeah, what else? Have we hit everything? Oh, uh, one thing. When I watched with my mom, I know that a kill that really impacted her was um, the principal. <laughs> Yeah. And her and my parents both, when they saw the principal, they're like, oh my god, it's the Fonz. And I'm like, I don't know who the fuck that is. But when they killed him, they were both so upset. Yeah. They were like, you can't kill the Fonz. And I'm like, again, okay. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It's a slasher movie. Yeah, well, I remember you being like, he looks really familiar, but I can't tell what he's from. And I'm like, well, it's Henry Winkler, and he's really famous for, like, being on Happy Days, which is an old TV show. And that's where he played the Fonz. Um, so generation- generationally, your parents were upset about that. Yeah. But pr- the principal, Principal Hembry, who's his character, is terrible. He's such an asshole. He's kind of creepy. Like, when Sydney gets questioned in the principal's office, he, like, literally, like, touches her cheek. And that's just such a weird action for an older male to do for like a 17 year old girl and he like cuts up the masks that these high school pranksters have been using with a knife and then like strokes their chest with the oh not with a knife with scissors um he like strokes their chest with a pair of scissors and it's just like so creepy and that's why he I think they tried to set him up as a suspect, but since he wasn't in the movie that much, I don't think it was that believable, but he was just a creep. No. So it's like, I don't really care if he was the Fonz. So my longtime mutual on Twitter, her name is Sophia. Um, Her handle is Scream Queen, and that's the word scream, and then K-W-E-A-N. And since October is the unofficial Gail Weathers Appreciation Month. She's been doing these weekly threads on Gail's role within each movie, and I highly recommend them because they are very well done. 
scene by scene character analysis analyses of Gale in each movie. We plug Sophia. We also plug Zach Cherry. Yes. Highly recommend Zach Cherry on YouTube. Yep. He's also um, um he's gotten some access to information about Scream Five that's filming right now. So if you want to know anything about that, he talks about what has been leaked in terms of that movie so far. Okay, so in Scream 2, it opens with a movie premiere scene. It's the premiere of Stab, which is a movie based on Gail's book, The Woodsboro Murders, which is about the murders that happened in the previous year with um, Sydney's friends. And this movie premiere is going on, and Jada Pinkett Smith's character gets killed right in front of everybody. And that sets off some suspicion because this is near the college campus of Windsor College where Sydney and Randy are attending school. Um, and pretty much what happens is that they realize that somebody is trying to commit a bunch of copycat murders because the names of the people who are being killed match like the names or initials of the people that were killed in the first movie. Uh, Gail returns so she can cover the murders again for her own career purposes and Dewey also returns to try to protect Sydney um, and there's all this conflict between them and a bunch more people die all of Sydney's new college friends die basically and at the end of the movie we find out that the two killers are Mickey who's one of Sydney's friends and Randy's film classmate who's just obsessed with horror movies and wants to be famous and um mrs loomis who's billy's mom and she comes back to kill sydney to get revenge um for her son's death nice. that is all how long was that a minute and 45 seconds dang i did pretty Easy. good <laughs> So, Where to start? Yeah, so one of the cool things about this movie that like resonates with me more now that we've been in college is that it takes place <laughs> on a college campus and it also largely takes place in a college auditorium, like a college theater. And Sydney is a theater major and we were both theater majors. Yes. And for some <laughs> reason that just like did not click with me as much when I was younger. I don't really know why, but, like, the fact that she's basically, like, an acting major and she's going to play Cassandra is just, like, hold on a second. <laughs> it's, like, I recognize just all of these things about being a theater major and being in that old-ass auditorium. It's just very iconic. I do feel like she has, I don't know, a bit too much uh, free time or, like, too many good vibes in her <laughs> life to be a theater student. Like, yeah. the first kill happens two nights before opening. I was just gonna say she's well-rested. It's just that she doesn't really seem all that invested. They don't really do a very good job at making her actually all that passionate about what she does. Yeah, I think that's why there was that disconnect for me when I was younger yeah. is that I didn't recognize her as a theater major barely even recognized the fact that she was in a school play so like yeah they don't really establish that fact about her very well it almost would make more sense if she were like a literature or like 
classics major who's doing a performance of a Greek play for those kinds of reasons. But that's okay. It I love a scene that takes place in an auditorium. Yes, yes. There's a whole chase scene that goes through the like sound booth um, and other storage things in the auditorium. And then the scene at the end um, that's around the set. And something so iconic is the way that the walls of the set tumble down and, like, you and me know those would be fucking, like, foam or, like, light-ass yeah, wood cardboard. painted to look like stones. Yeah. And these are, like, full-ass, like, rocks. It's, like, a full brick wall. Yeah. And it actually, like, gets in their way and stuff. Like, it's an actual obstacle, like, running away from the killers or, like, chasing the killers. Yeah, that's something. Yeah. Um, it falls down so easily, yeah. one. Um... I don't remember if it's Lori Metcalf or if it's Sydney, but she, like, stabs the sound or light board backstage and, like, chops up some ropes and shit just comes crashing down. Yeah. Um, th- I think some lights fall. Like, yeah, there's a lot fall. of safety there's, concerns here. There's, like, electrical shit happening. There's, like, sparks flying. And then the other thing is right before that scene starts... There's all these people in the, they were, like, on the stage fucking with the set. The sorority and fraternity people. Yeah. Portia de Rossi's in this movie. Yeah, yes. Portia de Rossi's in the movie. She plays a sorority girl. So, like, a semi-subplot of this movie is they're trying to recruit Sydney to a sorority. And Sydney's just, like, not into it. And partially it's because it, like, overlaps with, like, the murders. And so it's like, this girl's got other things on her mind. Like, she's getting triggered by these murders that are happening inspired by a movie that's like about this traumatic event in her life and these girls are just like we think you should be part of our sorority yeah i just love that it's like a college thing and now i can relate because i've been to college um i want to go back to that chase scene though in the auditorium that's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie of course because it's like gail and dewey centric and i love them it's, like, very intense. It's a great scene for Gail because throughout the series, she doesn't get chased a whole lot, actually. This is, like, probably her biggest chase scene. Um, and also just the reference for me of them being, like, in the sound booth and, like, the weird nooks and crannies of an auditorium. Like, it reminds me of where we went to school, but maybe a little bit more updated, which is sad because that was in, like the 90s um and there's this one part where they're in the sound booth and gail's on one side of the glass and she's on this and she's on the side of this like sound protected glass and then dewey's on the other side and they realize that they've like run into each other and don't know how like either of them got to where they were and then ghostface the whoever the killer is at the time like comes up and stabs Dewey in the back again after he was already stabbed in the back in the first movie. The guy's got shit luck. Um, And he's limping throughout the second movie because he has damaged nerves. Um, Yeah, although the limp comes and goes, which is what I find really interesting about David Arquette's performance. The limp is very inconsistent and it's pretty much non-existent in the third and fourth movies. Even though he's been stabbed in the back a two two whole times, rather brutally. But anyway, the killer like presses him against the glass and like 
he's getting blood all over it and Gail cries and it's like the first time you really see like any sort of emotion from her um oh and they also have like an estranged relationship because Gail basically ditched Dewey after he like recovered from his injury in the last movie even though like there was obviously something between them and she went and wrote her book and he has an issue with that um which is valid but it's just like the sad thing about it is that they can't hear each other because of the soundproof glass and it's just like uh it gets you it gets you right right in the feels that's another place where i wanted to know how they got in there why wasn't the door locked that's some expensive equipment and you're telling me that the doors just open all the time where's the stage manager in all this <laughs> The stage manager is non-existent. Clearly been disrespected. I don't know. If I did any of the stuff that happens in this movie, I would be, like, put on probation from my major. (laughs) It would be bad. It's funny because, like, I feel like where we went to school, like, yeah, stuff was locked up for the most part. But remember, I took you up to, like, the fourth floor where all of the, like, old-ass stuff was, and, like, the old production, or the old projection room, basically, is what it was, and, like, nobody has worked up there in at least a decade, if not more, and the only reason you know it's been at least a decade is because people have written in Sharpie, like, their names and the year, but prior to that, who knows? It's all dusty and not updated, (laughs) but, I mean, that wasn't unlocked. Were we supposed to be up there? Probably not, but... That was our moment as rebellious. Yes, exactly. Also, we graduated, so it doesn't matter now. I would love to talk about the scene where Sydney breaks down on stage. Um, because the f- every time I've watched the movie, I didn't realize the killer was actually there. Um, so basically what happens in the scene is she's on stage doing this huge dramatic monologue, and then the ensemble around her, or the the Greek chorus is doing like a movement piece and vocalizing and they're all wearing Greek masks, like traditional theater Greek yeah. masks. And Sydney looks around at them and I, I think like the camera starts spinning. It's like super chaotic. Um, and then one of the masks is Ghostface. I've always just assumed that it, the ghost face wasn't really there, that she was just seeing it because she's paranoid. But then in, like, Zach Cherry's video on Scream 2, he points out that this ghost face is a certain person. So is ghost face actually there? But then when Sydney like, collapses and looks up and she just sees the normal mask, he's gone. I always interpreted it as that ghost face isn't actually there and she was just seeing things. Um... But part of that is that I'm pretty sure when she runs off stage, Derek, who's her new boyfriend, shows up. And I think that was possibly to set him up as a suspect. But we learned that he actually wasn't one of the killers. So I think that's what... And she blames him, too. Yeah. In that moment. She's like, bye. Yeah. And that's what, like, partially, I think, informs my perception of Ghostface as, like, a hallucination. Is because I know that it's not Derek. But, I mean, that yeah. do- that doesn't necessarily mean it's not one of the other killers. I feel like also shortly after that scene, Debbie Salt, who is Mrs. Loomis's alter ego, pops up. Because I think Gail is there, too. Like, outside at night. 
Yeah, Gail goes to call the police from the phone outside, yeah. I believe. Mrs. Loomis, who's played by Laurie Metcalf, who's amazing. Um, her alter ego is Debbie Salt, and she is a annoying reporter, Gail Weathers fangirl, and it's very humorous. <laughs> yeah, this was one of the only killers in the whole series that I actually guessed, and I didn't know why she would be Ghostface, but if you remember when we watched it, the first time Debbie appears on screen and she says her first few lines to Gail Weathers and then she's gone and I'm like I bet it's that reporter yeah I think I thought she was like jealous or something or she wanted to so she was going to create these murders so she could report on them herself something like yeah that. she was like very focused on getting the scoop and Gail was like not having it one of yeah. my favorite Gail lines from this movie is um, when she tells Debbie slash Mrs. Loomis, your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious. <laughs> oh my gosh, we have to talk about Gail's new cameraman, Joel. Yes. <laughs> okay. He's actually probably Joel? my favorite character in this movie. Yeah, he's a fantastic character. Um, so Scream 2 decided that black people did exist. <laughs> And this is actually an interesting topic to discuss. Yeah. It starts with the murder of the two college students in the movie theater, both of whom are black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like this, the self-referential part of that is that the black characters are talking about the lack of black characters in horror movies, like leading up to going to see this movie. Yeah, so Maureen, her death is so devastating. Yeah. Me. So, like, what happens is her boyfriend goes to the bathroom where he gets stabbed, and then Ghostface puts on his coat and then goes and sits next to Maureen. And then while the killing scene is happening in Stab on the screen, he stabs her. And everyone around them has, like, plastic knives and Ghostface masks on, pretending to stab each other and screaming so no one hears her crying out for help. Um, and then she, like crawls onto the top near the the big screen and she like lets out a howl and then collapses and no one notices until she's dead that anything happened and I'm yeah because like, they think it's a publicity stunt yeah it's not questioned until it's too late and i don't know her death is so sad and she thinks that her boyfriend killed her um so overall that yeah, yeah Maureen that's way true. better. That's really not like that's so yeah, upsetting. Yeah, that's really to me. upsetting. Um, and the acting is phenomenal. Yeah, Jada Pinkett Smith is really scene. just funny She's and incredible great in that, scene. In that yeah. movie. I remember saying to the director at the time, "I want to die the most horrific death that has ever happened in a horror film, and I want it to be long and excruciating." And he's like, "Cool." Those are two of the black characters we get which um, brings us to joel the cameraman <laughs> joel yes sorry i went off topic but I feel yeah like it's, it's important, important for context the new issues and the new tropes that they yeah it in. shows like um, what they were referencing in this movie um which is like the criticism that horror movies are very white which is true and the first movie had only white characters in it so so joel gail treats him a little better than Kenny, I feel like. But also, I think she's just kind of been through enough shit where she's a little less micromanaging. Yeah. She's um, kind of just like, this is how takes... it is, and if you want to be succeed in this business, like, here we go. Like, this is what we're doing. <laughs> There's this really funny scene where, like, 
I'm pretty sure it's after the sorority girl is murdered. So that's when they start to realize that, like, the murders are happening again. Um, and he comes up to Gail and he's holding her book because he's like, black men do not survive in these movies. The story is monumental. Don't you want to be a part of that? I want to report the news. I don't want to be the news. Besides, brothers don't last long in situations like this. Which is like a, another good commentary of like the black characters always getting killed off. Hey again, it's me, Abby here. I wanted to pop in a second time to uh, shout out someone I found on Twitter. Um, in the discussion of race in horror films, I wanted to plug a really informative thread by the Twitter user at VeryMimi. So that's the word very and then Mimi, M-I-M-I. Um, they made an awesome thread talking about horror films that star or were directed or produced by black artists in the industry. It's an incredible thread. I highly recommend it. We will retweet it on our own Twitter page, so that will take you directly to their page. You can check out their other stuff. Yeah, he's a funny character. Um, yeah, I think he was probably my favorite new character from the movie. The two fucking rat boys they added are so irritating, the whole movie. Um, one of them gets, like, a four-minute song. Are you talking about makes me want to cry Derek? every time I watch it. Yeah, Sydney's boyfriend yeah. Derek is a frat boy. He's, like, very clean-cut. He is very not Billy. Like, he's not, sus he's not really suspicious, in my opinion, at all. They try to set him up as a suspect just because of the fact that he's her boyfriend, but he's, like, a pre-med student. He wears polos. He has, like, a sweet baby face. He's not really interesting at all. I don't know what she sees in him, and he's in a frat. Yeah, he doesn't have any sense of humor. I think that's why I like Joel as a character, because he does have a sense of humor. Yeah. Um, he goes and gets donuts while <laughs> a big killing scene is happening. Yeah. And then he gets back, and it, people are dead. Um, <laughs> so, mad respect for Joel. Yeah. I think Mickey's, like, kind of cool. He's, like, fine. I think the issue with Mickey and, you know, as one of the killers, like, I think he's fine as a killer, but the issue with him is that he's not in the last, like, 30 or 40 minutes of the movie, which, like, kind of yeah. gives it away in retrospect. Yeah, the last time we see him is during the cafeteria scene where Derek sings, and then we don't see him again until he's revealed as a Yeah, killer. I think he's funny, but he's, like, clearly an asshole. And yeah. I mean, obviously, because he ends up being a serial killer, but, like, prior to that, he's still an asshole, and he's an asshole to Randy in the film scene. Do you want to talk about the class, the film class scene? That's, like, this, um, that's the first scene of the movie after the murder, basically, except for, um, when Sydney wakes up in her dorm. Probably one of my only gripes with the Scream franchise is that each movie we're introduced to new relationships that have already been formed. So, no relationships, are except for Gale and Dewey's, are developed throughout the series. Yeah. It's just, like, oh, here's my boyfriend now, Right. And here's my roommate. She means the world to me, and we're best friends. Yeah. And that's, like, the unfortunate thing, too, is that with every new franchise, it's like, okay, they enter- or every new sequel, they introduce new characters, and it's like, everybody has yeah, to die, though. ones in the previous yeah. movie. <laughs> and then you have to introduce all these new characters because you killed everyone in the last right. one. Oh, wait, and also the um, film scene, too. The film class scene. 
Oh, yeah. That's thanks. what we um, were <laughs> to yes, figure out. Yes. The scene in film class. They were having a class discussion. Um, yeah, they're talking about sequels. Trying to debate whether a sequel has ever been better than the original. I think they mentioned The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the, the other, other ones they, they mention are like jokes and or not taken seriously like godfather's the only one that's actually like i can see it like that might be better than the original um i think they talk about terminator 2 something else but i think a lot of it is just like jokes and banter and then they also discuss whether or not violence in horror movies leads to violence in real life Mm -hmm. um which i think is pretty interesting because probably when was this released 97 two years after this that discussion becomes even bigger in the real world after columbine Mm -hmm. happens so it's kind of interesting to see it from an older perspective yeah because we can assume that this debate was already happening in our society yeah because media is getting like bigger and bigger at this time and just like multiple forms of media like online chat rooms and video games and stuff like that and that's how mrs loomis found mickey yeah it's through like an online chat room because mickey was like an aspiring serial killer and mrs loomis needed an assistant yeah that's actually like very like you know it kind of puts a time stamp on the movie is that they found each other in a chat room (laughs) it dates the movie a bit oh yeah but yeah that film class is fun it's just like you know, there's the one girl named Cece who, like, has all these opinions and she's a sorority girl. And then it's just, like, Mickey and Randy debating about stuff, just being film bros. When it's, like, you know, Cece's a woman and she's got opinions about movies. Good for her. <laughs> Even though she's a yeah, blonde she sorority girl, believe it or not. I wonder if Maureen was going to be in that. Yeah, I don't know, because I think Cece mentions that Maureen was in a different one of her classes. Or no, it's a different woman. A random student in that class who's a a woman. Okay. um, Mentions that she had a class with Maureen, but I I also wonder if Maureen was in that class. How wild is it, though, that two students are murdered, and then literally the next day in class, the professor's like, oh, your classmates that were killed? Don't you think that movies are to blame? (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of what this, like, series is, though, is that, like, it's always, like, the adults needing to analyze it, like, right after it happens, when everybody else is just, like, yeah, sure, this is a normal thing. But I feel like, I mean, Um, also, like, the kids are, like, desensitized to an extent, too, which, I mean, I think Randy has a right to be since he actually lived through it, but everybody else, it's, like, why are you theorizing your classmates' deaths? Yeah. Okay, so there are two small things I want to mention that happen around this part of the movie. So, um, I know we'll do a different episode where we talk about Scream 3. Um, and this is kind of tied into that, but it's more to do with Scream 2, I think. So in Scream 3, Randy has a videotape that was, um, done during this time. And we see him talking about the rules of a trilogy. And if you look at what he's wearing, it's the shirt that he's wearing when he leaves that film class. Yeah, that's and true. And you see him out in the hall with Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would have been like the day after those kids. Did he already know 
that he was probably gonna die because I think he dies that day right or the day after he dies like the day after yeah okay um but I think it's so fascinating that like he's already thinking that far ahead we can at least assume he filmed it that day right based on the shirt I mean you can wear a shirt more than once of course but like he dies very soon after yeah yeah because I think Cece who's a sorority girl gets killed that night Yeah, so it's like, I mean, to me, like, Cece's death would signify more that something was going on than, like, just the deaths at the movie, but maybe, like, Randy, I mean, he really, I mean, he is really smart, so maybe he did think that far ahead of, like, oh, they got killed at the movie that's inspired by the events of my life in the past year maybe it's like another round that's related okay the other thing i wanted to mention is also about the party that happens at night there's a theory that Stu is still alive and one of the key reasons for that is because i wouldn't even call it a cameo but he was an extra in the party scene and i don't think you can even see his face in it but we know it's him because he was on set that day, so he was an extra. Yeah, I've never tried to look for him, but I do remember learning that he was an extra. Yeah. I wonder if he was still dating, because Stu's played by Matthew Lillard, who is famous for being shaggy in the Scooby-Doo movies. Um, and, I mean, he's he seems like a wonderful person, and obviously he has other roles than that, but that's what he's known from for our generation. Um he and Nev Campbell were dating in the 90s. So I don't know if they would have been dating at the time in like 97 or 96 when that film was being made. But he could have been there. I mean, either as like, hey, it's the guy who played Stu or it's like Nev Campbell's boyfriend. Let's talk a bit about Cotton Weary. Yes, let's talk about Cotton Weary. So Cotton Weary is the guy who was accused of killing Sydney's mother because he had an affair with her. And that's who Sydney believed killed him. And had he like he had actually been in jail at the time of the first Scream movie because he was believed to have done it. Um, Which Gail kind of breaks that apart and realizes that it was not him. And she's like... I mean, for her career, Gail is very interested in presenting Cotton's side of the story. So Cotton is more prominent in the second and third movies instead of... In the first movie, he's just shown shown on, like, a news report in an orange jumpsuit. Yeah. But he's in the second one, Um, and he pops up on campus because Gail invited him there to do, like, an interview with Sydney for clout he assumed that sydney knew about it but she didn't and this is when sydney smacks gail in the face a second time (laughs) because it was just completely inappropriate of gail to spring an interview on her like that um so yeah the second and third movies deal with cotton trying to like clear his name first of all who names their kid cotton (laughs) so he was falsely accused and i don't know as a whole i'm not really a fan of like Oh, I was falsely accused of this. And now I'm the and victim. And now I'm going to jail. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of wonder if it's it's not just like, oh, this rich-ass old white man was falsely accused, quote, falsely accused of harassment or some shit, but rather this is like a lower class man who can't afford the right lawyers and actually is a victim of 
a failed justice system. Yeah. Because his whole motivation in the second film is basically money and kind of fame, but mostly, like, connections. And uh, he's promised to get paid a lot of money for these interviews he's doing. Yeah, that's true. Which would lead me to think that he is not very well off, and that's probably a reason why he ended up being sentenced to to jail yeah that's a really complex and generous assessment that i never thought of before (laughs) because i just think he's an asshole i mean i'm i do feel bad for him obviously because like being falsely accused of murder and he actually is accused of rape as well because of you know whatever tests that were done on maureen's body when she was murdered but the thing is, is that they just had sex at that point. So I don't think he actually raped her um, because he wasn't guilty of the murders either. But I think he's just, he just wants to clear his name and that's what he's interested in. And I think he's using it as an excuse to become famous and to get money. Um, but I hadn't really thought about it in context of like his class position which is an interesting perspective. Um, Yeah, it's hard to say because you don't really get a lot of information on him in the first movie. So it's like, who is this young man who's like sleeping around with Sydney's mom? Like, you don't really know what his situation is. Yeah, we can talk more about Cotton in Scream 3 um, since he's in the beginning and we can explore the new Cotton. Yeah. Um, I, he just really rubs me the wrong way. He's a very interesting character, but, like, he's clearly an asshole, too. Yeah. Regardless yeah, of his motivation. no respect <laughs> to anyone, especially women, it seems. Yeah, he comes to Sydney so. in the library when, like, somebody threatened her via, like, instant message on the library computer. And so she thinks it was the killer. It probably was the killer. And she, like, runs to a corner. And, um like cotton encounters her and like she he's trying to talk her into doing an interview with diane sawyer and it's like buddy now is not the time (laughs) i think he gets taken away to the um the police station after that because sydney's bodyguards that were given to her think that he's involved at that point is that when that's right he yeah yeah you're right he definitely gets taken he gets taken in and then he gets released and sydney thinks it's a big mistake to do that which i guess from her perspective that makes sense because in the first movie they released billy and it was billy Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was definitely like a parallel like it was on purpose that that is how it happened another parallel it's smaller than this but in the first film, Gail Weathers mentions um, when they're discussing Cotton that although Sydney says she saw Cotton leaving wearing his jacket, Gail says, no, you saw someone wearing his jacket leaving the home. And in the opening of Scream 2, the boyfriend's jacket is what gets stolen from him before he sits down next to Maureen. Wow. That is... As some might say, a very astute observation. <laughs> <laughs> so I th- that's how we're supposed to know that, like, this is Ghostface, or 
I mean, maybe it, I'm thinking too much into it, but I wonder if it is trying to connect it back to us thinking of Cotton. Yeah. Because it was mentioned in the first movie. Yeah. That way True. we're not thrown off when Cotton Weary is introduced again. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So a fun fact about Scream and Scream 2 is that on Rotten Tomatoes, Scream 2 is rated higher than Scream 1. Um, Scream 2 has a rating of 81% and scream one has a rating of 78 um which is so that makes it's it, very interesting and very that, meta that they have that conversation of like which one was which sequel is better than the original i got another example of that paddington i was gonna two. say she's gonna say paddington too paddington two has a 100 percent. that's incredible i still haven't seen the first paddington movie because you're very adamant about me seeing paddington too so <laughs> Listen, I'll take your word for it. Anytime someone says they haven't seen Paddington, I'm like, you don't need to see it to see the sequel. You'll you'll catch on. It's a bear in London named Paddington. Yeah. The first one mostly deals with xenophobia. <laughs> the second one deals with justice in the prison system. That's right. Yeah, you don't really need to see the first one to see the second one. Maybe that's why I'm so interested in the Cotton Weary storyline um, about, like, class in relation to the justice system because of what happens to Paddington. Yeah, and I mean, Cotton... And Paddington's friends. And yes, Paddington and Cotton was locked up for, like, almost a year. And he yeah. was gonna get a death sentence. Like, Gail says that they were gonna gas him, so... Yeah, does that wrap up Scream 2? Yeah. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. It yeah. holds up. So recently I tweeted, and this was in a... I was at least half deep into a margarita. If not, I had drank an entire margarita at this point a few weeks ago when I was watching Scream 2 and I tweeted, Courtney Cox deserved an Oscar for her performances in the Scream franchise. And much like now, I am also a margarita deep. And But at that time, some random dude bro film Twitter guy is just like, I'm sorry, I have to disagree. And then he goes and talks about how he loves Gail and he loves Courtney, but none of her performances are Oscar-worthy. And he said specifically, as someone who studies film and acting. And I was like, first of all, who asked? Second of all, bold of you to assume that I don't study those things? (laughs) Like, bruh, you're talking to and I didn't study acting and I still don't study acting but like you're literally talking to a PhD student in theater freaking film bro twitter I cannot <laughs> uh but I was I mean I was also like 50% kidding I, I mean Courtney Cox is very good in those movies and I think like I think I think she's underrated as an actress in general but like her performance in the screen movies like really proves that um yeah. And I just like Yeah, like if not an Oscar, then how about like a gold Yeah, that's what I said like too. I put like a little reply tweet on that when I tweeted it and I was like or at least a golden globe, like literally. Um I think that's partially cuz like I mean she wasn't super well known at the time, like Friends was on the air, but it hadn't blown up yet. And just like horror movies are kind of marginalized in terms of film criticism too. So that could be it. I do wonder, though, like, is she so good because Courtney is so good? Or is she good because the writing is good? Or is it both? 
porque no las <laughs> I know. I think it is both. Do you think Gail is like the most like fleshed out character? Like she has the most character development, I would say. Except for maybe Yeah, I think I mean so. the three that survive the four movies, uh spoiler alert. Um, the main three survive all four of them. Like Yeah. I think Sydney goes through a lot of growth yeah. from I wouldn't necessarily say between the first two, but like from the second to third and then the third to fourth, I would say she does. Yeah, she does go through um, a lot of growth. Um, I feel like Gail... But she has to be a little more stable. Like, she has to be really recognizable to the audience, and she is the exactly, final girl. Yeah. Whereas Gail has a little bit more room supporting character, yeah. which is just so fun. Yeah, I feel like Gail has, like, more of, like, a complex psychology, I would say. Because, like, she's very ambitious, but you do see that she's, like, very caring as well. And, like, she would never do anything that would actually put anybody in harm's way even though she is self-interested um and i guess dewey grows a little bit too because like he becomes less dumb over time <laughs> do we want to move on to our final portion yeah um do we want to talk about the final girl topic? yes <laughs> okay so we want to talk about which of us between brianna and abby myself and abby who has more final girl potential? Who is more likely to survive a horror movie? So I posted a poll about this on Twitter, and pretty much all of my Twitter followers know us both. Um, it's mostly friends from the school. But I, I made a Twitter poll, and there were 21 votes. I got 62% of the vote, and Brianna got 38% of the vote. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't want to say I disagree, but I'm curious to know why <laughs> yeah. other people feel Yeah, that way. I am curious to know, like, why people in our lives presumably made those choices, even though, like, I do agree. I do think you would be more likely to survive than me. Just because, like, I think you're just more cunning than me. Like, I freeze up in tense situations, I feel like. And so yeah. I think you're just, like, quicker on your feet and able to problem-solve faster. Yeah, I'm definitely a problem-solver. And then in some situations, I can get very defensive. So it kind of also makes me feel like I might have a Tatum-style death where, like, I backtalk the killer and die really soon. Yeah. But I don't think I could be an opening kill. Yeah. There's usually a fair amount of fighting back or running involved there that's yeah. like what we talked about is that like I'm a runner so like I have that going for me even though I'm not I'm yes. not very fast but like I can run if I need to um and Abby is not a runner <laughs> no. so maybe we're saying that uh, Abby is brain certified in quarter staff combat though so if there's a quarter staff yeah Nearby, yeah, if she can pick I up. I could potentially survive. If she can pick up a quarter staff, she might be okay. Um, but it's also like, who knows how I would act like in that actual situation? Like, it can yeah. bring out some crazy shit in people. I'm sure. So, who knows? But yes, that would be interesting to know why the people that know us chose one way or the other. I imagine it's for similar reasons. We'll have to 
do some more research yes. on this and talk about it next time we do a horror movie episode. Going off of the, like, having a sequel be quote-unquote better than the first movie, do you have a favorite between the first and second movies? Um, I think I would pick Scream over Scream 2. I feel like Scream 2, at a certain point, it kind of drags a bit. That's the word I was looking for. Kind of the same um, thing. <laughs> yeah, I hate the music sequence. It literally, like, jolts the whole movie to a stop. Yeah. I think I thought... It's not necessary. Yeah. I don't care how Cindy feels about this man. I don't really think she feels that much toward the man because he's, like like I said, he's so uninteresting. Like, he's not interesting at all. He's yeah. just, like... Maybe that's why he's it just genuine. He's just generally nice. Like, that's just his main personality trait is that he's, like, a nice guy. Yeah. He gets upset when she wants to distance herself from him, but she's doing it to, like, protect him because she knows that people in proximity to her are gonna die. And he does not yeah. like that because he wants to be there for her. And I'm just kind of like, oh, whatever. Maybe the reason it, it bothers me so much, this music scene, is because in my, my musical theater acting classes, <laughs> we always discuss how a song is an escalation of an emotion so if you go from speaking dialogue and you break into song you have to have a reason to do it as a character and he has no reason for it like i don't feel like the feelings are strong enough mm -hmm. that this boy would start singing yeah i think emotionally the feelings are definitely not strong enough i think shortly before that scene they do have a conversation about like wanting to put like sydney wants to put distance between them to protect him and I think, I mean, I think it's almost kind of manipulative and very performative of him to have this song in the cafeteria to, like, profess his love so that she maybe, like, trusts him more and, like, wants him to be around. And I'm like, bro, you're, like, making it about your feelings when, like, she already told you what she wanted and what she needed. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, people are dying, Derek. Yeah, people are dying, Derek. You don't need to sing I Think I Love You, which was a Partridge family song then covered by Less Than Jake, um, who's actually a distant relative of my boyfriend, fun fact, um, <laughs> to give her your sorority letters and sing I Think I Love You in a crowded college cafeteria. You know, maybe not the move when people are dying <laughs> and your girlfriend is, like, being re-traumatized on, like, an hourly basis. <laughs> but, you know, nice guys are going to do what they're going to do. One other thing that we'll have to talk about at some point is the way we love both Gail Weathers and CJ Craig. Yes. They're both reporters. They both take no mm -hmm. shit. So we'll have to talk about the comparisons between them. And when you were talking about whether or not Gail's fashion is justified, I found myself thinking about the episode of The West Wing where CJ's asked what she'll be wearing and she responds, a dress. <laughs> um, so it would be interesting to talk about, like, misogyny yeah, it, and the way yeah, those two women handle it. And just the it. role of, like, self-presentation and, and gender performance yeah, and things um, like that. And whether or not those two women, like, suffer from I'm not like other girls <laughs> syndrome. 
I would argue that CJ Craig doesn't no. because in other episodes we see her. She goes dress shopping and she doesn't like the little women and, and those things and stuff like that. But that's a that's a different yeah, conversation. That's a, it's a long that's series. An, yes, so. that's an interesting observation. Yeah, the other thing, while we're still on Gail, is like, I mean, we can talk about why we love her so much. I think like, just like, I love that dynamic of being bitchy but having like a really like good heart ultimately and like being very passionate I don't know I'm like attracted to that in a lot of characters and um Gail and Dewey also have that dynamic of like you know there's those memes about like the really grumpy one and then like the sunshiny person like Gail and Dewey are that because Dewey is like very just naive and humble and like well very well-meaning and super nice and like like I said just very naive almost to a fault and Gail is like the exact opposite of that um and that's what makes them very compelling now we're gonna move into the pyramid The bottom of the pyramid is obviously Drew Barrymore's wig. Yeah. Did you see that clip from her talk show where she put on a wig similar to that wig? No, I didn't. And a sweater similar to that no, sweater. No, is it? Should I watch it? And she did a she did a little skit on the street of like, what if her character from Scream was still alive? And like Ghostface would just be still just going after her. Okay, fifth throne. What what do you think? I think I'm going to give I'm going to give this to the giant stones that fall from the set in Scream 2. Oh yeah, we're also talking about Scream 2. Yeah, so fifth place goes to the stone wall that crushes Lori Metcalf. I would give fourth place to Tatum's nipples, but I f- maybe that's yeah. Not I was gonna say something about nipples. <laughs> I honestly was. I was gonna say like, okay, whatever bra or not bra that Rose McGowan was wearing in the first movie in that garage scene, especially. Yeah. Um. Let's just move on to third place then. We're in agreement. Yep. I'm gonna give perfect third place to. The inevitable true crime podcast of Gail Weathers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Second place. What do you think? When Gail tells Debbie Salt slash Mrs. Loomis, your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious. Okay. So we're going to give... that's like every teacher I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to give second place to the... Um, homoerotic tension between Gail Weathers and <laughs> Debbie Salt. And first place, um, to me- Ooh, that's a lot of pressure. This is kind of a tie. So, I'm thinking, one, Matthew Lillard's tongue acting, but also, <laughs> mm-hmm. Jaden Pinkett Smith, just in general. Yeah, yeah, I, I vibe with that. Do we want to do, like, a, I guess, like, a breakout performance of- 
Scream 1 and Scream 2, so we can give it to both of them. Yeah, let's do that, because... Matthew Lillard's tongue acting and Jada Pinkett Smith's... I think that that's fair, since it's one from each and her, film. Yeah. She is so and incredible her switch in from it. her switch from humor to horror, yeah. too, is just so good. Yeah, she's incredible in Scream. Cool. cool. Are we all Are we all done? Well, I guess Is this it. our first episode? We did it! We did it! That wasn't too bad. That was at all. not too bad whatsoever. Good for us. How do we sign off? I don't know. How do we sign off? This has been Abby and Brianna with What's Next. You can find us on Twitter at What's Next Pod C. You can also listen to us wherever podcasts are available as soon as they're available on there by our distributor. Stay tuned on Twitter for updates on that. And if you like the episode, send it to a friend or let us know. Until next yeah, time, we we'll be right back. Oh. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>